Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Matthew Booker, the Center's Vice President for Scholarly Programs. It's my pleasure to introduce this special series of Discovery and Inspiration episodes. Each year, the National Humanities Center welcomes up to 40 scholars from across the United States and abroad who spend their time working on scholarly projects to enhance our understanding of the human experience. Our usual Discovery and Inspiration podcasts are recorded during their year at the Center as they are immersed in the research and writing process. These special episodes of the Discovery and Inspiration podcasts, however, feature National Humanities Center fellows discussing their completed projects, which have now been published. These conversations were part of the Center's virtual book talk series in 2020, 21, and 2022, which were recorded originally on YouTube with a live online audience. I hope you will enjoy this fascinating conversation with one of our amazing scholars as they share insights into what their research reveals about the world we share. Like many of us who were kids in the 1970s, Tom Leekan's fascination with animals was sparked on a weekly basis by watching the adventures of zoologists Marlon Perkins and Jim Fowler every Sunday night on Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. But in the decades since Tom's parents let him stay up past bedtime to learn about the lives and habitats of lions, bears, and wildebeests, Tom's childhood passion has been transformed into the underpinnings of a distinguished scholarly career in environmental history. Since receiving his PhD in modern European social history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1999, Tom has been a member of the faculty at the University of South Carolina, where he currently serves as professor in the Department of History and in the School of the, of the Earth, Ocean, and Environment, and as a faculty associate of the university's Walker Institute, a center for global research and outreach. Tom has been recognized on multiple occasions for the quality of his teaching, in particular for the creative integration of his research into the classroom. Tom's scholarship on European environmental history and the legacies of green imperialism, particularly the frictions between global and local wildlife conservation and the uneven effects of tourism as a lever of sustainable development in East Africa have resulted in a variety of publications including his book, Imagining the Nation in Nature, Landscape Preservation and German Identity, 1885 to 1945, an edited volume on Germany's cultural landscapes and environmental history, and an anthology of essays considering the ways environmental thinking in numerous fields has taken shape in the wake of Indian historian Deepesh Chakrabarti's 2009 seminal essay on the Anthropocene, the Climate of History. Tom's most recent award-winning book is the subject of our, conservation, of our conversation tonight. Our Gigantic Zoo, A German Quest to Save the Serengeti, published in 2019, examines the controversial origins of the Serengeti National Park, one of the world's largest conservation efforts, as it brought into tension the ambitions of former colonial powers, and local interests in the midst of mid 20th century expansion of national parks, heightened interest in nature tourism, and the popularity of wildlife television programs in the United States and in Europe. It is a fascinating read, and I'm looking forward to talking about it with Tom 
this evening. Everyone, please join me in welcoming Professor Tom Leekan. Tom, welcome. Well, thank Take it you. away. Thank you for that really kind and generous introduction. And I also want to make sure that I uh, thank Heidi Camp for inviting me, uh, who's your director of development, and also for Joel, Elliot, and Jason this evening who helped us with just getting our technical our technical capabilities up to up to speed. So I'm really I'm really grateful to all of you, and of course I'm very grateful to the National Humanities Center where I was a fellow a very long time ago. And this book would have never been possible without a fellowship there in 2010. And in fact, it changed so much from the time I was a fellow that it took me about another decade to write the book. <laughs> but I hope that it's I hope that it's intriguing enough uh, for those who are listening tonight to think that it was worth the wait. So thank you for that kind introduction. What I'm gonna do actually is, is sort of dovetail off of what Matthew just talked about and look at some of these tensions between global conservation and local interests. Um, homing in especially on Benhad Jimek's uh, Serengeti Shall Not Die, his sort of iconic film from 1959. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna share my screen with you. Um, I have a few slides and points I'd like to make. And then we have some time for Q&A afterwards. So uh, let me go ahead and do this. I've got some film clips for you this evening as well. So, um, so what I wanted to do was begin today with a, uh, a little vignette and a story about my research in this area, which like I said, took place after I was a fellow at the Humanities Center. So in 2011, a friend of mine who's a Tanzanian conservationist and a guy named Simon Magnato took me to the Ngorongoro Conservation Area. And if you look, my pointer will show you, it's right here in kind of the north central part of Tanzania. It's the most visited conservation area in the country, which is one of the most extensively uh, protected areas of Sub-Saharan Africa. So Tanzania, by some estimates, has 31% of its territory in national parks, game reserves and other protected areas. And that doesn't even include uh, the marine reserves that it has. So it's, it's dedicated a lot of time, effort and money to conservation. And Simon took me uh, at the, during that visit, just after we got through the visitor's gate at the Ngorongoro Crater Conservation Region to an outlook that's very popular with tourists. Um, and to this overlook, and I snapped this picture, and you know, I'm an amateur photographer. <laughs> so if it looks this good, you could imagine how beautiful it would be for just almost any visitor who comes. This is an, a caldera, it's the world's largest, so it's an extinct volcano with walls 2,000 feet high. You can see the clouds kind of pouring in over the side. And as you peer down, and what you can't see in this photo is it contained at this point, giraffe, wildebeest, African buffalo and other iconic animals. And I was just, it was a breathtaking view. But what Simon had in store for me was something that I hadn't quite expected as part of my journey to the Ngorongoro region. And that was a side path to this particular tombstone. And this is the tombstone for Michael Jimek. So the Jimeks are a West German pair, but have Polish origins. So it's kind of a Jimek, but I'm gonna use Jimek. Um, who had actually died near this site in uh, 1959 as he was conducting research in a Dornier a DO-27 airplane. Later on, his father, Professor Bernhard Jimek, as you can see below, also had himself entombed there as well. And the epitaph uh, really sort of captures the quest that's at the heart of my book. 
Um, and that is that sort of tells the story about the GEMEX activities in, in, in uh, East Africa. And it says he gave all he possessed, including his life for the wild animals of Africa. And this is Michael in this case, who died at just 23. So this crash was a tragic end to the quest that I explore in this book and from which the talk comes tonight. Um, this quest had its origins about a dozen years earlier uh, when Bernhard, the father, had taken over directorship of the Frankfurt Zoo and he transformed the zoo from the, uh, a bombed out shell with just 13 animals in it into one of Europe's most venerable zoological gardens and a conservation site in and of itself. So he was really pioneered using zoological gardens to conserve habitats, not just at home, but especially habitats abroad. Um, Michael had become very famous as well, appearing with his father in publicity photos, shots on his television program, and of course, for the film. Until the time of his death, he had planned to use the Serengeti research that they had done as part of a dissertation about the animals themselves, the number, their migration routes, which I'll talk about in a little more detail, and then the habitat of the great savannas of East Africa. Now, this is, of course, a very tragic story. Um, and when you visit the gravesite, you can't help but feel that sort of heart tug about Michael's death and the tragic story that, that um, is told in the visitor center. On the other hand, the gravesite is somewhat eerie and uh, somewhat disconcerting as well. So the question that Simon said to me, and it, it does make us think about our themes for tonight, is why would it be that two West Germans in this case would be the most important conservationists, arguably, in Africa's 20th century history? Why would it be that this pair would come? And so the gravesite sort of intrudes on a landscape where they don't quite belong. It's like it's standing of watch over this landscape that they had called their home and called their own, um, but which is part of a new nation at this point, and um, which is a landscape filled with Maasai herders, uh, people who graze and livestock, others who call this landscape their own homeland. And so you already see this odd clash of interest just in the way that the tombstone is in place. In fact, if you know the work of Terence Ranger and you're familiar with Zimbabwe, it might remind you a little bit of Cecil Rhodes' grave at Matapos National Park, which was the subject of a very important book. Now, in the wake of Michael's death, Bernhard threw himself into a number of accomplishments that have made him iconic in West Germany and other parts, uh, I'm sorry, iconic in Germany today and other parts of Europe. So he published their research in a series of articles in English and scientific journals. He wrote a best-selling book, Serengeti Shall Not Die, Serengeti Darf nicht sterben. And then of course he produced an award-winning film, winning the Academy Award for best documentary feature Actually, it was awarded in 1960 uh, for, this, for this same film. And you see him holding the Oscar there. Um, it was dubbed or subtitled into 27 language, screened in more than 60 countries, frequently rebroadcast re on public television. And so it really shaped Europeans' sensibilities about what to expect, not only of Serengeti, but of African landscapes more generally, and not just in Europe. Because it had such a global influence, it really taught us to see global heritage in a particular way. As one of his books uh, mentions in its title, it makes the claim that rhinos belong to everybody. Rhinos belong to everybody. So everyone has a stake in what happens in the Serengeti and other national parks in this one corner of East Africa. Now, after this, he becomes uh, the director of one of Europe's most important nonprofits engaged in conservation work and work closely with 
Julius Nyerere, who becomes the first prime minister of an independent Tanganyika. He's on the right. So this is Jimek here, and this is Julius Nyerere here, eventual president of Tanzania uh, in the 1960s and 1970s. And so the argument that I want to draw out for you tonight is as follows. Um, and I hope to follow this through by looking at Serengeti Shall Not Die as a film and as a, as a creative project. So I'm going to argue with argue for you that Serengeti Shall Not Die made it possible to care not just about individual animals in films, but whole ecosystems. So what was really pathbreaking and breathtaking about their vision was this ability to conceive of a whole ecosystem as something that we should care about. And they achieved that by using, as you see, and hanging from the Serengeti Visitor Center photo here, which I, this is one that I took, um, their uh, sort of iconic zebra-striped uh, airplane. Uh, the D enta, as it says on the wing. Now, Serengeti Shall Not Die purports to be a film that just documents the, the, the scientific mission. Um, in fact, they claim that it was an apolitical film, one that stands above petty interests um, in the interests of ecological preservation as a whole. But what I want to show you is it also carefully crafted to produ produce a particular version of world heritage that rendered many local claims to animal, plant, and sacred resources of this region fleeting and insignificant in comparison to the great cycles of nature. So what's left out of the film is important as what's inside the film. Um, and what we don't see a lot and what I'll talk about a little bit is those who lived and made their, who made their living in this landscape, namely Maasai pastoralists, as well as others, such as Ikoma hunter, Sukuma farmers and, and, and others. So, but we're gonna focus mostly on the Maasai tonight. So the question that really emerges isn't just how nature is protected, but whose nature is protected who benefits from the protection of nature in particular day, ways, and who, who bears the costs of the land that's put aside for the protection of animals. So tonight I'm gonna actually cut this a little bit shorter than I had intended, just to make sure that we have plenty of time for your questions and your comments. So I wanna give you a little bit of background about the Serengeti controversies, especially what brought the Jimex to this region in the late 1950s. A tiny bit of background about Jimek in the zoo, in his zoo uh, capacities, the zookeeper's ecology. Uh, we'll look at the Serengeti film itself, and then I'll talk about the ways in which the film in some ways misreads the landscape based on its history of not just colonial occupation, but also local land use. And then we'll think a little bit together at the end about what it means not so much to think globally and act locally as environmentalists sometimes admonish us, but what it means to think locally and act globally, to sort of take suppositions from one context and move them to another, often uneven and unequal ways, as Matthew alluded to in his introduction. So let's first look at the Serengeti controversies, that first point in my slides. So this is a map of what the Serengeti National Park looked like in 1957. And as I said, the Jemex were the first to conduct aerial surveys of this region. They wanted to know not only how many animals existed here, but where they moved. Um, and they moved in, as, as we'll see in a moment, in very complex ways in tandem with weather patterns in this area, dry seasons and wet seasons in search of sweet grasses on their journeys. In 1956, the British colonial government, which controlled this area of East Africa at the time, it was called Tanganyika territory. It was a former German colonial area as well, was to divide the Serengeti as it existed at the time. So as you see here, the park, the park at this point 
was about an east to west, kind of east to west, or let's say northeast to, uh, sorry, uh, southeast to northwest oriented park, about the size of Connecticut, 5,700 square miles, large, large park. And it was oriented in a number of different, uh, toward a number of different environments. So you have the central Serengeti Plains. So this is the grassy uh, acacia, acacia wooded landscapes that we sometimes see in photographs. Also, it included at this point the Ngorongoro Crater right here, and other highland crater environments. These former um, these former extinct volcanoes that are part of the African Rift Valley. The park then stretches all the way to Lake Victoria, to a to a bay on Lake Victoria, um, a kind of wooded grassy area known as the Corridor. And so, what the British were proposing at this moment in time was to divide the existing park. And what it would look like, and what it looks like today, actually, is what you see there in red. To shear off the eastern third of the park, the Ngorongoro Highlands and, and Plains, and make that into a mixed use area, a sanctuary for the resident Maasai pastoralist, along with animals. They had been, Maasai had been living in this area since the 1830s. And then the plan was then that the Maasai would have to evacuate the central Serengeti Plains and the park would essentially move toward the west and north, extending all the way to the border with Kenya and then downward a little bit to the south. So this would have been a radical reconfiguration of the park as it existed. And the Jimex were very upset about this because they wondered whether this would actually encompass the migratory uh, patterns of the wildebeest and other animals that they so loved and uh, which they felt were necessary for the, to, to leave the sanctuary intact for future generations. This came at a very explosive period in uh, East African history. So just very briefly, um, what you can see is that 1957 to 1959 lies just at a point in African history when many different territories are becoming independent of former European colonial powers. So we have here Great Britain in orange, France in blue, the Netherlands, Italy, Belgium, and others. We're looking today primarily only at uh, uh, these areas. So Kenya, Uganda, and then Tanzania, Tanganyika before that, 1961, which were just on the brink of becoming independent from Britain at this particular time period. So what makes this claims about the film being solely an apolitical quest above petty squabbles was just how heated this period of political history was, that they had held on to these territories for a long time, exploiting them for minerals and agricultural goods, even claiming that they were bringing a so-called civilizing mission, uh, the fruits of European technology and know-how to peoples that Europeans viewed as underdeveloped. These tides were quickly turning, however, Ghana became the first independent country in 1957. And as I said, Tanganyika, which later became Tanzania, became independent in 1961. So the Jimex knew that, they, that there was an urgency to the quest in a political way, right? That they wanted to, um, in a sense, get the borders intact before the passage of power from Britain to, Tanzan to Tanganyika's new uh, African leaders. And so this really is interesting when we think about, again, the claim of uh, of kind of celestial or global heritage above petty interests is this was such a heated environment. And if we look at the timeline that I've provided you, you can see that this, this region was embedded in a much longer colonial history. So although uh, Jim Mix would claim that this is a primordial wilderness and should be left intact without anybody living in it, the existing border should be left intact and even expanded. 
Um, what we see is that the Serengeti is embedded in a very deep history that includes colonial, uh, colonial rule, both the German, 1914, they proposed the Ngorongoro region as a game reserve, for example. Then the British, after they take over in the 1920s, uh, proposed this area as a game reserve. And this is true of many, many of the national parks in East Africa that they were former game reserves. And these game reserves were set aside to replenish animals, to be sure. For example, elephants lost in the ivory trade, but also for the exclusive use of big game hunters from, from Europe who paid license fees while local Africans were banned from hunting and farming, and even in many cases, grazing, gathering firewood, gathering medicinal herbs and so forth. So there was already a sense of tension over game reserves even before national parks were on the horizon and being, being created. So as you can see, I've, I've sort of placed their surveys right in the heart of this, this period of, of, of great contentiousness and also great possibility with the brink of decolonization. So 1951, they established the borders of the park. In 1954, just across the border in Kenya, we see anti-colonial uprisings that, um, that really prompt a lot of consternation in the West about what will become of the parts, the parks under, um, under independent rule. So the assumption that Jimek made, and that I'll argue was in some ways, in some ways misguided, was that Maasai pastoralism was bound to lead to a dust bowl. So this picture really kind of shows a, a, a kind of cattle that was commonly bred in this area. They're called Zebu cattle. Um, it shows them being very gaunt, very uh, in, on, along a very dusty plain. Many uh, Jimek and other Western conservationists believe that like the American plains of the 1930s, Africa was on the brink of a dust bowl. And so their fear was that the Maasai who had inhabited this land for generations were not going to remain, and this is their words, not mine, primitive enough to continue their traditional pastoralism, their herding of livestock, most especially cattle, but other things like goats as well, um, or whether their increasing numbers and growing heads of cattle, goats, and other livestock would trample fragile grasslands, outcompete wild animals for watering holes, and interfere with tourist expectations of what wild Africa should look like. And what, what was it that people thought it should look like. Well, the Maasai found themselves in some ways caught between two different visions of the Serengeti, um, one in which, neither of which included them as part of the picture, as part of the landscape moving forward. So one is this one, and this is my own photo again, um, hundreds of thousands of wildebeest across the Serengeti Plains during the, the, uh, the short wet season. In this case, I took it in December. Um, uh, in search of these grasses. So at, at this time in, in, in uh, 1957, they assumed that about a million of these animals existed on the plains of the Serengeti. A prolonged drought, of course, had, had made this area a little bit more precarious, but nonetheless, the assumption was that there were a million animals left. And so the idea was, would Maasai pastoralism begin to sort of encroach upon the habitat of these animals? Would they over-trample, over-graze, compete with the animals for water and grass, and lead to desertification, a dust bowl? The other group on the horizon, though, is a different one, and that is what I call the great tourist migration. So two interlocking and different migrations, both of which didn't include Maasai and others as part of the picture. So I took this one, these happen to be German tourists, so I thought it would be very good. And what they have their cameras fixed on are rhinos. This is in the Ngorongoro crater. Um, 
we estimate that more than 400,000 people visit this area in one year. Now, at this time, uh, there weren't a lot of people yet coming to uh, the Serengeti region as tourists. And the hope was that by creating a national park, fixing its borders, they could make it more attractive to tourists who would bring new development funds, new monies, new foreign currency to an area that, that stood on the brink of, of decolonization and independence. So the question arises for us back to my original argument, whose rights should prevail in the Serengeti as it was constituted in 1957? The needs of endangered animals or those of local residents engaged in mostly customary land use. Now, they assumed this was a zero-sum game in space between people and livestock, which is something that still haunts the Serengeti today. And so what Jim Mack decided in this context was the best way to win people over to his idea of conservation, to his vision, was, um, was to create a film. And not just any film, but one that would engage people in thinking about the herds of animals as a cultural heritage of mankind. And so what I want to do is sort of move a little bit into the sort of media savviness of Bernhard Jimek in this context and how he used the film as not just a scientific documentation, but also as an adventure that would sort of encapture and enrapture people in wanting to do everything they could to protect this area, both in, in filming it and visiting it, but also potentially donating funds to help its preservation. Now, not many people in America have heard of Ben Hajimek. <laughs> in fact, I don't know of I don't know of many before I began this project who had ever heard of him. But if you are from German-speaking Europe, you definitely remember Jimek very fondly for his Sunday night programs that appeared uh, uh, monthly at eight o'clock. And as as Matthew alluded to, the kind of thing that your parents let you set, stay up early to watch. Um, he had a very measly voice. Uh, and he's so there's a lot of comedians in Germany who sort of parody his voice a little bit uh, as a kind of animal whisperer. And as you could see, he brought live animals from the zoo into the studio, but he began to be more and more interested in the animals' habitats abroad. So the question was not just how animals exist in a zoo, but how we can create the environments in a zoo in which they will be feel content, they will feel at home, they will reproduce, and then moving even outward from there, how parts of, of Africa be, could become giant open zoos in which the animals could flourish. And so if we sort of think about this from this perspective, from thinking locally, acting globally, we see that the zoo plays a very critical role in thinking about this quest to save the Serengeti. And so if you look here, this, these are children looking at elephants uh, in, this, in the Frankfurt Zoo as it was reconstituted, again, from a bombed out site to one of the most important zoological societies, the most visited site in West Germany by 1957. Millions of people visited it. And Jemek developed very savvy ways of attracting people to the zoo. When it was at its worst, when there were only a few dozen animals left, he uh, commissioned a roller coaster to be brought onto the site of the zoo in order to bring people in. Um, he uh, offered dancing on the platform amid the ruins of the zoo to sort of bring visitors to attract them, uh, I'm sorry, to attract them to, to the zoological gardens. The idea was bit by bit, mark by mark, Deutschmark by, by Deutschmark, to build the, uh, the zoo's capacity to buy more animals and to create uh, sufficient habitat for them in the zoo. And it worked, it worked. Um, uh, by the 19, late 1950s, um, millions of people were visiting, were, were visiting the zoological gardens. And this media savviness 
um, became uh, custom, uh, uh, became characteristic of his style. Um, and so if you sort of think about this, this time period, many of the zookeepers in Germany were very staid and very traditional, and they were aghast at these kind of techniques to bring people, to bring people in. So he's a, he's a scientist and a showman. As I said, he had the longest running television program in German history, A Place for Animals on Platz für Tiere, which lasted from 1956 to 1987. Arguably, um, television came of age in West Germany along with this program as it was one of the most important. And, you know, as Matthew mentioned earlier, these were the kind of programs that attracted people of my generation, the kind we might call infotainment, entertainment that's good and uplifting and not trashy. Uh, Marlon Perkins' Wild Kingdom, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom was characteristic of this, this kind of genre. And so you can see why this media savviness, this sense that of attracting people as uh, their, their donations, their commitment, their love of animals could be parlayed then into trying to save the Serengeti if he got the right mix of a film and uh, engagement right. And so what I'm gonna do is skip a little bit ahead from here um, to a little bit of a pause for you because we're about halfway through. <laughs> and if you need to get a little bit of water, I find when I'm teaching Zoom classes that it's nice to pause for a second, reflect, reconnect if, you're, if you need to reboot and make sure your dinner's not burning before we move a little bit further on uh, in, the, in, the, in the program. I'm gonna take a sip of water um, and, uh, and invite you to start to put some questions in the chat as you think about the, what you've just heard. So let's take a look at this idea of taking a scientific project and making it into an adventure story that would appeal to broad audiences and make them care about animals in a corner of East Africa as a global heritage of humankind. They originally had planned to donate money outright to keep the Serengeti intact as it was in 1957, but the park's uh, director, Peter Malloy, suggested instead that they do a um, scientific survey to figure out how many animals there were and how the migratory cycle worked so such that they could encompass all of the animals habitat in the new national park boundaries. So they had to understand and appreciate where the animals went, how many there were, but also they had to encourage viewers to understand and love the Serengeti as an ecosystem. So not just empathy for, for individual animals, but herds of animals themselves as if they are global heritage. Jim Meg made uh, parallels to the Louvre in Paris, the Acropolis in Greece, that these were to be, uh, that the kind of aura the, or the cultural symbolism of these animals outshone these great works of human creativity and ingenuity. Um, of course, this idea of seeing the Serengeti in this way, sort of as a as timeless refuge punctuated by cycles of nature, um, uh, also made the claim that political decisions must yield to those larger natural cycles. And so as we saw, in my, as I argued earlier, we see this tension already between the global and the local working itself out through this film. So what I wanna do is show you a little bit of how the film worked and how they achieved this idea of making uh, viewers care about herds of animals. So first of all, we talked about the aerial perspective. So the celestial view offered by using uh, this iconic plane, this zebra stripe plane as a, a symbol for the film and their adventure. Secondly, 
they wanted to engage people through empathy with animals. So lions up to that point had appeared in a lot of German documentary films and narrative films as, as uh, bloodthirsty beasts. And often it featured hunters, especially white European hunters as uh, sort of killing the animal um, just in time to save villagers from its death throes. And this, this kind of a sort of great hunting adventure was very common. And he wanted to sort of turn that whole vision on its, its head. And he even published this, and it says this in the book version of Serengeti Shall Not Die, the following quote that I have for you. But this actually, this almost got the film censored um, by making this claim that zebras were in some sense better than uh, human beings. Uh, again, coming out of this World War II uh, context in which he had lived in, in Germany. So they kill zebras, this is lions that is, they kill zebras, wildebeest, but they do so by breaking the neck or biting through it so the victim feels less terror than cattle when we put them to death in a slaughterhouse. It is almost unknown for a lion to kill one of his own breed so that we humans who murdered millions of our fellow men in Europe during the last war could well learn be decent behavior from them. So what I wanna do is show you this idea of science as adventure, sort of moving away from dry uh, number crunching and dry, uh, dry, um, dry uh, uh, surveys and to something that could, be, could capture viewers' attention emotionally. I'm gonna show you the following clip. It's just about two minutes long and it gives you a sense of how they use this, the airplane as a kind of celestial, para, uh, celestial panorama. Beyond the Ngorongoro crater, on the broad, endless plain of the Serengeti steppes, graze the last gigantic herds of animals of the plain to be found in Africa. According to all previous estimates, there are more than one million of them. We have the job of counting this throng. The very thought makes us feel uneasy. To make a start, we divide up the whole of the Serengeti National Park into separate sectors and deal with one at a time. Every day, we fly a parallel course up and down one of these sections. Division into sectors is no simple matter as there are no proper maps of this wilderness. We therefore choose our own boundary points, select dried up riverbeds and solitary bushes or take bearings off mountains on the distant horizon. We get used to estimating whole groups at one quick glance. Each of us, separately and quietly, makes his own calculations and enters the figures on a list. Then we compare results as a check. Swarms of animals like these used to team all over the plains of the whole of Africa. But today, these regions are empty and bare. All the lovely animal photographs and films can be taken only in the few national parks and nature reserves. When the crowds of animals become too dense, we can reduce our speed and slow down to 30 miles an hour. All we have to do is lower the flaps. Each of these black dots represents a thousand animals and shows where they are living at the moment. But in two weeks time, the picture will be quite different again Okay, so as you saw in the film clip there, this already creates the sense of drama and tension, right? The idea that there's only 367,000 animals, not a million. And to achieve this effect, we have to look at sort of the craftsmanship and the creativity. So mounting the camera, 
on the wing of the plane. This was something that Jim X had learned incidentally from Lenny Riefenstahl, the very famous uh, documentary filmmaker from the Nazi era. Um, they also added features to the plane. So you could see how it can hover very, almost like a, a bird itself. And they often use that analogy that the, that the plane sort of melded into nature, almost, almost as a, a kind of uh, organic machine of its own um, in order to map the migrations. They found incidentally that the migration, so this is in German, it's the migrations of the, of the animals. They found that for the most part, many animals stayed their whole season, whether wet or dry, in the Ngorongoro crater, the very area that the British were thinking about excising from the park. And according to their research, that northern extension contained no animals for any part of the season. This was later proved to be incorrect, by the way, but it does also sort of heighten the sense of endangerment that these park boundaries won't encompass the migration of the animals. And the way that they did this was harnessing brightly colored neck collars on the animals and following them from the air. So this enables them to achieve new scientific heights, but also aesthetic ones. And so I wanna show you one more clip. Um, this is a really beautiful one. Of, of presenting the Serengeti again as global heritage, as a timeless refuge from human strife and political squabbles, uh, as a natural zoo or a gigantic zoo um, that in Jim X words, God had created himself to protect the animals from marauding human beings. So let's take a look at this and we can talk about it as well. For thousands of years, the volcano Aldonio Lengai, which the Maasai call the Mountain of God, has stood guard over this magnificent landscape. It would be a tragedy if the teeming and varied life of the Serengeti, which until comparatively recent times spread across the plains of all Africa, should be lost within a couple of generations. We have only to think of the fate of the gigantic herds of animals which a hundred years ago thundered over the North American prairies, or of the wonderful animal population which Europe once possessed. In the beginning of time, and for countless years, there existed a kind of natural balance between man and the animals, which continues even today in a few places like the Serengeti. True, lions and hyenas take their annual bloody toll here, but life also renews itself triumphantly each year with the birth of tens of thousands of young animals. That has been the natural pattern of life since time immemorial. Today, the human population of our Earth is multiplying at a staggering rate. Our numbers are increasing by 180,000 every day, or 700 million every 10 years, more than the total population of China. As we become more crowded in our concrete cities, our grandchildren will be able to see less and less of the wonders of nature. These last remaining herds of African game are a cultural heritage of the whole of mankind, just like our cathedrals and ancient monuments, the pyramids, St. Paul's Cathedral, the Louvre in Paris. Only a few centuries ago, the Roman temples were being wantonly torn down for the sake of building materials. If today any government of whatever political shade dared to pull down the Acropolis in Athens in order to build workers' flats, the whole civilized world would cry out furiously against such outrage. Similarly, no man, black or white, 
should ever be allowed to endanger the future of these last living cultural treasures of Africa. God made the earth subject to the will of man, but surely not that he might completely destroy his creation. Who doesn't love an, a, a lion cub with its mother? <laughs> and as you could, so again, we come back to this idea that lions may be in some ways better than their human counterparts. And also this idea of this kind of celestial, this, this I'm sorry, the celestial vision of global heritage that we all are invested in, as he says, black or white. And that if we made similar ideas of building workers' flats, uh, along the Acropolis, there would be an outcry from the international community. He wants to bring that same sensibility to the Serengeti animals. Now, just briefly enumerate some of the things that are left out of that vision. So what's in the film and what it shows you is just as important as what's left out, especially if we looked at it from the ground up. And since the time is short, I just wanna mention a few things that I think would be good bases for discussion, thinking a little bit about how in some ways quick dive into the Serengeti without a lot of deep knowledge of the landscape could lead to misreadings. And this is uh, from um, a pair of Africanist scholars who use this idea of misreading the landscape as a motif for thinking about um, global heritage and conservation in this, in this time period. So first of all, this is their, the Jemex claim, of course, you cannot keep men from multiplying. So they're very worried about overpopulation as they defined it and cannot force them to remain primitive. A national park must remain a piece of primordial wilderness to be effective. No men, not even native ones, should live inside its borders. The problem with this is what's erased here, of course, is Germany's own colonial past in the region. So you can see German East Africa encompassed a lot of what became Tanganyika, including the Serengeti region. Um, and so there is a ghost here, a ghost of Germany's imperial past that sort of surfaces in the film, never quite being resolved, but certainly um, evidence of power relationships that don't stand above the political uh, and don't st stand above um, uh, the old imperial past. So if you look at this one, this is a scene in the film from Fort Ikoma. And Fort Ikoma was a place that it had that had endured tremendous fighting during the latter part of World, of World War I. And you can see that the Jimmicks portray it as a place where this sort of political struggle is being overcome by weeds and grasses. At one point in the film, there's a zebra that even walks into the area. So it's both evoked, but then kind of erased by the overwhelming forces of nature. Similarly, another big ghost that's erased from the film is rinderpest. So what is rinderpest? It's a virus that moves easily between animals, uh, wild animals, um, hooved un ungulates such as wildebeest, some species of African buffalo, warthogs and others, as well as cattle. And this came to, uh, through Ethiopia to the African continent in 1887 through European, uh, especially as Italian traders in this case, and spread rapidly throughout the continent, devastating cattle, devastating livestock and devastating Maasai's pastoral, uh, pastoral ways. And so what the Jimex were encountering in the 1950s when it was in a sense the remnant of a landscape that had been ravaged by disease, killing both wild animals and livestock. 
Um, so people who came to the Serengeti during the, during the imperial era and then repeated again by the Jimex sort of missed that this area was not so much on the brink of, of a devastating loss of animals, but the animals were just recovering, especially as they were developing new vaccine, prophylactic vaccines against, uh, against rinder pests. So it plays a huge role. And then of course, the other question that we need to ask ourselves is what kind of threat did the Maasai actually pose to this landscape? And I won't go too detail into this right now, but the idea that they were destroyers or that they were overpopulated or, be, or that they were short-sighted opportunists really sort of shortchanged a more comprehensive view that we now have of how pastoralism works. So what is pastoralism? Pastoralism is a subsistence pattern of people lake, make their living by tending to large herds of animals. In the case of the Maasai, they're transhuman which means that they follow a cyclical pattern going into wet areas during the rainy season where the grasses are green and moving into highland areas during the dry season, in this case, the Ngorongoro, and moving cyclically back to certain homesteads called bomas. And so this becomes a landscape that they consider home. They're not simply, as the Jimex put it, nomads who don't have an attachment to place. Rather, in some ways they have co-evolved with the cycles of, of weather and that the livestock and animals, in some cases grazed uh, intermittently off of similar areas at different times. And the idea that overpopulation really sort of shortchanged um, the idea that the Maasai had different ways of, of, of managing these, these uh, landscapes customarily, um, uh, religious practices that stopped people from overusing certain, certain, uh, certain uh, uh, foraging areas. Um, looking at the dung and cattle, for example, to figure out where to move next. So you need a very large amount of land and colonialism had circumscribed the land that was available for them. So what was taken as being overgrazing and overpopulation was in some ways the result of, of colonialism and other forces having shrunk the land that was available for this very extensive and for the most part sustainable lifestyle pattern that had existed for generation. And thus the central paradox of the Serengeti to move forward a little bit is rather than a primordial wilderness, in some ways, this is a landscape that had been shaped by human activity for millennia. Uh, pastoralist peoples had lived in the Serengeti for 2,500 years. The Maasai were the most recent. Um, their burning created new kinds of forage areas for animals. Their homesteads often resulted in little forested areas that sort of pockmarked the, the otherwise dry Serengeti plains. And so this is an unresolved tension in the GEMEX project, and I think really highlights nicely the clash between local and global. So what I'll do is I'll stop there, um, and I want to get the questions that you have, but you can kind of see some of the unresolved tensions between global and local that really haunt uh, conservation efforts, not only in this area, but other national parks in East Africa and other areas today. So I thank you for the time that you've given me, and I'll, I'll, I'll come out of this and see if Matthew has some questions for me. Tom, thank you for that wonderful presentation and those remarkable images in particular. Um, you obviously have a wealth of material that you had to work through and choose from in your book. And um, of course, I know that because I've gotten the chance to read your book, and I hope others will now too. Um, <clears throat> we have just received a gusher of questions from our, uh, from our, our viewing audience. And that's too bad because I have a whole bunch of my own questions. Fantastic. <laughs> but, but no one can call me a, 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 a jealous man or a, a bad person. So I'm going to start with theirs. I'll start with other people's questions. Um, the first comes from 
the first has to do with the concept of global heritage of mankind that you mentioned. And um, this question is, can you say something about how that concept, the global heritage of mankind, transcends the divide between nature and culture? And then the corollary, the second part of the question is, is it related to the principle of international law, common heritage of mankind? That's a great question. And historically, I think for this particular question, it might be really good to situate uh, the idea of global heritage in the context of this time. And it ties in really nicely with Serengeti. So um, on their journey from Frankfurt to East Africa in that Dornier, that zebra-striped Dornier plain, the Jimex took what they called a lap around the Aswan Dam. And I think that's very significant for the story that, uh, that you're, the uh, questioner is asking and also for the book more generally. So at this time, you may know Egypt was building the Aswan Dam. Um, this was the largest hydroelectric dam project in Africa at this point. It was meant to hold the waters of the Nile. And UNESCO, which was a relatively young agency, the United Nations, uh, get it right, Tom, Educational, Cultural, and Scientific Organization, uh, had um, raised a tremendous amount of funds to move these cultural artifacts of Nubian slash Egyptian civilization higher to sort of avoid being destroyed by the rising waters of the Nile. And it's sort of out of this context that this common heritage of, of mankind, at least in my reading of it, emerges as it applies to the Serengeti. And so the idea was to try to make a parallel between the rising waters of the Aswan Dam, if you will, and the rising tide of humanity. So this idea of Jimek as the second Noah takes concrete form in making parallels between cultural resources or cultural monuments and these natural monuments. And Germany had a long tradition of the idea of the natural monument. And so it became very easy to sort of translate that into thinking about animals and wildlife. Um, incidentally, after the story that I told you in 1961, there's a conference called the Arusha Conference uh, on nature and uh, uh, it's basically a, a nature conservation that happens in the town of Arusha uh, that involves UNESCO, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, the Food and Agriculture Organization, other uh, global players. What's fascinating is there was an expectation that there would be direct payments not just to uh, Tanganyika, but to other newly independent countries to save wildlife. The expectation among many of the African participants at the conference was that they too would receive the same kind of, um, uh, let's say resources that Egypt had been offered in saving uh, cultural relics and cultural monuments. That money never came. And I think Matthew can tell you, sort of I make the claim that tourism didn't quite work as, as um, Tanzania had hoped. So I think that's where the parallel I see is not just the concept, but in the monetary value um, that these were assumed to have and that they were assumed to be able to gain in that early 60s context, right on the brink of decolonization um, as we move from imperial heritage to global heritage or imperial patrimony to global patrimony. Well, it's interesting you, you, you end there or you, you mentioned the politics because we had a couple of questions that cluster around the tension, perhaps, or at least the relationship between the GMEX with their conservation policy, their notions of conservation, and the German government, the West German government, and its attempts to resuscitate its authority, create a new kind of authority. It's a new state, 
Um, it's in many ways the inheritor of a terrible period um, in German history. So how did the conservation theme that the, that the GMEX have play into or against the West German policy toward Africa at this time? That's a fantastic question. So um, first of all, one should know about Bernhard Jimek that he uh, was not just a zookeeper, but he does have a Nazi past. So that's an important part of the, the bigger story. Um, I would consider him to be, uh, he joined the party in 1937. And those of us in German history would know that this was a time period where many bureaucrats, and he at the time was working in the agricultural ministry, joined the party in the hopes of furthering their careers. However, there is a lot of it in his writings that, it, that suggests, um, well, affinities for eugenics. Even in the 1970s, this appears in his autobiography, which I was sort of shocked to find. And I think a lot of the obsession with overpopulation, and he's not alone in this. Fairfield Osborne from New York Zoological Society is another one who wrote Our Plundered uh, Planet. Um, there's a kind of obsession with overpopulation in the developing world or what was called at the time, the third world. And so the politics of demography and animal life are really important to this story. Now, um, I, I would argue that in some ways, the GMX viewed uh, the saving of animal life in some ways as a redemptive act for West Germany's um, role in World War II and the Holocaust. Um, that's a controversial stance, but I think you can see that in his writings. Um, so there's a kind of um, this sense that the saving of animals will in some ways, I, I don't wanna say compensate, but, it, but he does suggest that West Germans can in some ways make good for a really horrible past in that way. Now, when you ask me about West Germany, where this really comes into play, and I'll make this one quick, sorry, is that West Germany and East Germany are, are competing for spheres of influence in East Africa at this moment, um, really after the building of the Berlin Wall. So again, another big political event that's sort of outside the frame of this film is the building of the Berlin Wall in 1961, but the tensions are already there in 1959. And Tanzania is a non-aligned state or Tanganyika, then Tanzania as it's formed in 1964. And so there was a time in which the East German government was building model prefab concrete housing on Zanzibar and the West German government was doing similar projects in Dar es Salaam. So I do think that that competition in the Cold War context over this region and over gaining influence really matters. And where the West German government, which ended up being, believe it or not, after the United States uh, and Britain, the third largest donor nation to Tanzania, which is sort of odd. We don't think of Germany in that context, but sort of in reclaiming in some ways that colonial heritage or making good on that as well. Um, we do see uh, development funds pouring in to, um, to, to facilitate that. They don't give much money to tourism. They do give a lot of money to road development and city buildings, but that's another, another story for, for, uh, for this, for this, beyond this talk. <laughs> Well, there are a number of ringers who've showed up for this talk, I must say, and who are and who have read your book and are asking questions about it, having having read it. Um, and I am one of those. So I'm going to go ahead and ask one of my questions sure. um, in my in my job now. And I think like many scholars, I have the privilege of reading many scholarly books and I've come to appreciate a particular kind of academic writing. And I refer, of course, to acknowledgments. 
and yours are especially fine. You um, rightfully and graciously thank many people, including the staff at the National Humanities Center for the help you received in writing this book. And, and your preface where you include this material demonstrates the range of the archives worldwide that you consulted and perhaps some where you weren't helped as, as much as you might've hoped. Um, but in addition to the help you received, I'm, I'm interested, did you run into any obstacles? Did anyone not want you to write this book? And perhaps the bigger question here is really, who should be troubled by the findings uh, that you have here? Um, you refer at one point to conservationists who refer to yours as problem histories. Um, who, who should be troubled by the findings you have in this book? Yes, I, I would say so. Oh, boy, that's a it's a this is a, it's a tough question, but I'll go ahead and go for it. I um, I do think that the current um, configuration of international conservation NGOs in Germany, especially and more broadly in Europe, um, might find some of these conclusions troubling. The current Frankfurt Zoological Society, I know, has um, not not fully embraced, but not certainly not hindered my research, I would say, but I would I do think that Jimek is important. Here's the problem. Jimek is still important to a generation that has money for fundraising. Um, so it's not just that this story is problematic of the global versus the local and whose nature is being protected. I think that that legacy still has to be worked through on a very fundamental level. Of course, now we're dealing with a different state uh, configuration. But, but nonetheless, I think that he still is resonant for a whole generation of people for whom they want to fundraise from. And I think that, you know, Elizabeth Garland puts this really well. She's a, uh, an African anthropologist. And she said, you know, be careful about using these, uh, what she calls charismatic mega scientists, which I love. So charismatic megafauna are what we refer to as African buffalo, rhino, uh, lions, you know, uh, leopards. But uh, Jim Eck is a charismatic mega, mega scientist. And so, you know, what would it look like? I didn't, I had to sort of stop short on my, my time with the, the PowerPoint, but I had a nice uh, slide from the visitor center where you can see that people are trying to move toward what they call community-based conservation. And I teach about this in my classes, but it is a long haul because the, 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 the problem of land tenure and the problem of land rights has not been resolved. It's never been redressed from the colonial period really. And um, when we look at the, um, the claims that are being made on areas, not just in Serengeti, but around it right now, it's just further encroachment and land grabs on pastoralist lifestyle. So there's a real struggle, I think, that's even more pronounced today between indigenous rights and conservation, and they should be partners. I mean, the, the way I think about it is that cultural and biological diversity um, should, they don't always, but there are ways that they can mesh hand in hand. Um, I will go so far as to say, was it ever a good idea to remove the Maasai from the borders of Serengeti National Park? Um, you know, and, and, and when we look at the poaching crisis today and we look at other troubles in the national parks, I think that we sort of ask ourselves about whether dispossession, this kind of fortress style conservation has really worked in the ways that we had hoped. Um, and, and, and I think that that's the, that's the troubling aspect is that moving toward even a more benign community conservation um, doesn't deal with the land rights issues that are at the heart of this book. What a wonderful statement about the value of an historical approach. Uh, 
to questions that are often monopolized by people outside the humanities. And I think of the work you do as fundamentally a form of public humanities, as the work of many historians is. And um, Tom Leekan, I'm delighted that you joined us tonight for the first in this series of conversations with, his, with uh, scholars uh, at the National Humanities Center who have recently published books. So, so thank you, Tom. And thanks to all of you for your interesting questions, even those whose questions I did not ask. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Discovery and Inspiration. If you would like to view the original video recording of this or other humanities-related events, you can find them on the National Humanities Center's channel on YouTube. You can also find episodes of Discovery and Inspiration on SoundCloud or by visiting us at nationalhumanitiescenter.org.